So I'd like to speak tonight on a theme that was central to the meditation we just did on the listening part. And I invite you to listen, not to take notes. There's no quiz, no exam. Just a listening to sense what this reminds you of, if there's something of value, something that touches a wisdom you already carry. Let it awaken that within you. And if not, just let it go. Here we are, July 2021. We were hoping to be post-pandemic, but we're not out of the woods yet. With the variants and the spread of COVID in many, many parts of the world that don't even have vaccines, which is heartbreaking and in some ways almost immoral, I'm sorry to say. This along with the ongoing global dilemmas of climate change and the struggles for social and economic and racial justice. And here we are in the middle of all this. We have uncertainty. We don't know if we can travel. We don't know about school even. And of course, there's worry or anxiety and even kvetching and moaning about it all. And yet what we're called upon to do, kvetching has its time and anxiety has its place. But somehow underneath it, we're called upon to meet this time with our best spirit. And from the perspective of wisdom, difficulties have a purpose. My teacher, Ajahn Shah, would ask us sometimes, where did you learn more? Where did you learn your wisdom? Where did your heart learn when things were easy or when they were difficult? And he would smile. You know the answer. This from the Zen teacher, Carl Fried Durkheim, who writes, the person who being really on the way falls upon hard times in the world will not as a consequence turn to those friends who offer them refuge and comfort and encourage their old self to survive. Rather, they will seek out those who faithfully and inexorably help them help them to risk themselves so that they may endure the difficulty and pass courageously through it. Only to the extent that a human being exposes themselves over and over again to annihilation can that which is indestructible be found within them. In facing dangers in this way with daring, facing difficulties, this is the gateway to true awakening. And so this is both personal for us as we go through difficulties. It's also true for us as a society and for us as a global community of humanity. How do we respond? A friend of mine who works at one of the big online meditation programs, you know, these huge ones like Insight Timer and Headspace and Calm, asked me if I would do a show for one of them on 
post-pandemic practice. And I reflected about it because I think we all have some mild forms of trauma from the pandemic and it's still ongoing, our pandemic PTSD, depending how you have lived with it and how you've been tuned to those around and the suffering globally. And in difficulties, our bodies go into fight, flight, or freeze. We get the kind of limbic hijack, the survival brain. Will things be okay? Will it touch me? Will it touch my children, my family? What will happen? And so we have worry and anxiety or grief for what we've lost or the fact that it's been long. It's long haul in some ways for all of us, even though some who had COVID had severe long haul COVID. And then we're supposed to come out and I remember seeing someone on the street wearing a t-shirt that says, now that the virus is subsiding, I still don't want to see you. Kind of the message of the introvert who loved the stillness of this time. And our minds are trying to figure this out, to plan and rehash figure out the future, make things better or safe for ourselves as we navigate. But remember the passage from Mark Twain, where he said, my life has been filled with terrible misfortunes, most of which never happened. So what is the alternative? The invitation is to come into the present, to live here and now in the reality of present, which is all we have, to breathe as we did in the meditation, to quiet the mind, to listen to the heart. And in this listening here in the present to find wisdom, compassion, and love. Being in the present reduces the stress of trying to figure it all out. And it's not that we don't have to make appropriate plans, but we can plan a little bit and live here a lot. And as Nelson Mandela said, when things are difficult, just tie your shoes and keep walking in the right direction. In this phase of the pandemic, in this cycle of climate change, in this political time, in this time of humanity on this earth, coming to terms with the unbearable beauty of this world and the ocean of tears, we'd like to figure out how to navigate it properly. But we don't actually know even as you come out of the pandemic, maybe you used to like parties, but do you really want to be in a party? How does it feel at first? It's exciting, but that, hmm, I kind of also like taking walks by the river. I kind of also liked taking time with those I love or taking tea or reading or listening to something that nourishes me. 
No one's ever been in this time, in this place before, you know. Like Somerset Maugham, who said there are three rules for writing the great English novel. Unfortunately, no one knows what they are. So we're in an unknown time. Then what? As you open loving awareness, as you sit and quiet yourself, you become the witness, the one who knows, Ajahn Chah's phrase for the witnessing consciousness. And there opens a bigger perspective, the turning of the seasons, the rise and fall of ideologies. And as it says in the Tao, there's a time for being ahead and a time for being behind, a time for being in motion, and a time for being at rest, a time for being vigorous, and a time for being exhausted, a time that we are in danger, and a time for being saved. As Ecclesiastes says, there, to everything there is a season, and when we step back, we begin to see the rhythms of life unfolding. And then we can sense, how might we respond? The rise and fall of all the things that we're subject to in our personal life, in our collective society. I think about that wonderful conversation in the Book of Joy that I've mentioned in previous talks between the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Tutu, asking them, how can they be happy after the sufferings they've seen of apartheid or the loss of the culture and monasteries into death? And they laugh, they tease each other. They're saying, hey, you know, as the Dalai Lama said, so much has been taken from me. Why should I let them take my happiness? And Tutu will tease him, tease him about, or he teases Tutu about his big nose and Tutu teases him about his hat. And they start kind of wrestling like young boys. And then Tutu stops and says, hey, we're supposed to be holy men. Quit that, cut that out. But then they say more deeply, if sorrow brings us together, let some good and joy be born of this. Let some sweetness come even for what we've been through. And the next volume, if you will, of the same spirit created by Doug Abrams who helped with the Dalai Lama and Tutu's Book of Joy is a new book, The Book of Hope coming out at the end of the summer by Jane Goodall. And the conversation in the book is about what it means to have hope in the midst of the loss of species and the rising oceans and the shifting environment. And Jane talks about amazement and resilience and the power of the younger generation to start things anew 
and the indomitable human spirit. And she says, I've seen so much. I have to go on because I care. I care passionately about nature, about children, about life itself. And hope is really spirited out of care. <coughs> so all these are beautiful reminders. The question is, how do we practice? Mindful loving awareness invites a deep listening to step out of the thrall of time and listen in a deeper and different way. When you read the Book of Hope, which I hope you get to see when it comes out, Jane Goodall talks about Professor Louis Leakey, who sent her into the jungle to study the live chimps, hoping it would help him understand the skeletons he was discovering in the old Dubai Gorge. And he gave her a grant for six months. And she sat and watched and peered and looked. And after five months still, she couldn't get close to them. And she was almost despairing, but she said she had tenacity and patience. And in the last month, a chimp she named David Graybeard decided to come close and study her as she was studying him. And eventually he showed the other chimps that it was safe and he began to show her the tools he used to pull the ants out of the anthill so he could eat them, the, the, the ways the chimps lived. And it all came from her listening. Here's my favorite story or one of them about listening. <clears throat> It's by Richard Selzer, one of the great essayists and a surgeon at Yale University in the medical school. He writes on the bulletin board in the front hall of the hospital where I work, there appeared an announcement. Yeshe Dundon will make rounds at 6 a.m. on June 10th. The particulars were given with a note, Yeshe Dundon is personal physician to the Dalai Lama. I'm not so leathery a skeptic, I would knowingly ignore an emissary from the gods. Thus on the morning of June 10th, I joined the clutch of white coats waiting in a small conference room adjacent to the ward selected for the grand rounds. The air in the room is heavy with ill-concealed dubiety and suspicion of bamboozlement. At precisely six o'clock, he materializes a short, golden barrelly man dressed in a sleeveless robe of saffron and maroon. His scalp is shaven. He bows in greeting while his young interpreter makes introductions. Yes, Jay Dunton, we are told, will examine a patient selected by a member of the staff. The diagnosis is as unknown to Yeshe Dunton as it is to us. He will examine the patients in our present, after which we will reconvene and discuss the case. We are further informed that for the past two hours, Yeshe Dundon has purified himself by bathing, fasting, and prayer. I, having breasted, breakfasted well, breakfasted well and performed only the most desultory of ablutions and given no thought at all to my soul, glanced furtively at my colleagues. Suddenly, we seem a soiled, uncouth lot. 
The patient had been awakened early and told she was to be examined by a foreign doctor and had been asked to produce a fresh specimen of urine. So when we enter her room, the woman shows no surprise. She's long taken on that mixture of compliance and resignation that is the face of chronic illness. But this for her was gonna be another in an endless series of tests and examinations. Yeshi Dundon steps to the bedside while the rest of us stand apart watching. For a long time, he gazes at the woman, fixes his glance at a place above her supine form. I too study her. No physical sign or obvious symptom gives a clue to the nature of her disease. At last, he takes her hand, resting it in both of his own. Now he bends over the bed in a kind of crouching stance, his head drawn down into the collar of his robes, his eyes closed as he feels for his, her pulse. And for the next half hour, he remains thus, suspended above the patient like some exotic golden bird with folded wings, holding the pulse of the woman cradling her hand in his. All the power of the man seems to have been drawn into this one purpose. From the foot of the bed where I stand, it is as though he and the patient have entered a special place of apartness and silence about which a vacancy hovers. And after a moment, the woman rests back on the pillow. From time to time, she raises her head to look at the strange figure. I cannot see their hands joined in this correspondence that is intimate and exclusive, but I am envious, not of him, not of Yeshe Dandan for his gift of beauty and holiness, but of her. I want to be held, held like that, touched so, received. And I know that I, who have palpated a thousand pulses, have not felt a single one. At last, Yeshi Dundon straightens, gently places the, wooden's hand, the woman's hand on the bed and steps back. The interpreter produces a small wooden bowl and he pours a small portion of the urine specimen and proceeds to whip the liquid with two sticks. Then Yeshi Dundon bowing above the bowl inhales the odor, odor three times, sets down the bowl, and turns to leave. All the while he's not uttered a single word. As he nears the door, the woman raises her head and calls out in an urgent voice. Thank you, doctor, she says, and touches with her other hand the place he had held on her wrist. Yes, she done then turns back for a moment to gaze at her and then steps into the conference room. He speaks now in Tibetan in sounds I've never heard translated. He speaks of winds coursing through the body of the woman, currents that break against the barriers, eddying. These vortices are in her blood, he says, the last spendings of an imperfect heart. Between the chambers of her heart, long before she was born, a wind had come and blown open a deep gate that must never be opened and through it charged the full waters of her river as a mountain stream cascades in spring 
battering, knocking loose the lamb, flooding her breath, is silent. May we now have the diagnosis the professor asks. The host of these rounds, the man who knows answers, congenital heart disease, interventricular septal defect with resultant heart failure. A gateway in the heart, I think, that must not be opened through it charge the full waters of her breath. So here is the doctor listening to the sounds of the body to which the rest of us are deaf. I know, I know. Now and then, as it happens, as I make my own rounds, as if I can hear the sounds of his voice, like an ancient Buddhist prayer, its meaning long since forgotten. I remember only this, the music remaining, and a jubilation possesses me, and I feel myself touched by something divine. It's such a tender story. It is a beautiful story of listening. And it's what's asked of us in all these ways, in politics, in the ending of the pandemic, in the climate, because all the difficulties are symptoms. They're symptoms rooted in the human heart that's mistakenly taken over by separateness, by fear, greed and hatred and anger and under that by our pain. Thomas Burton says, of what use is it to travel to the moon if we cannot cross the abyss that separates us from one another and ourselves? So in this time of difficulties, with a listening heart, Instead of turning on one another, we can turn to one another. When my beloved Trudy went to work in the Darfur refugee camps in Chad with the IAC anti-genocide group, the main thing they did for quite a time was simply sit down with the women and listen to them and say, what do you need? And they said, we need preschool for our children so they can understand that they can learn and grow. We need soccer so our children feel like they're part of a greater world. What NGO would have imagined that, bringing in you know, their supplies? But now there's Darfur United, a global entry in the soccer teams of the unrecognized nations. And the Hundreds of thousands in the camps are so proud of it. We have to listen more deeply. A friend of mine, a celebrated filmmaker, was so worried about her son, who's an artist and a musician. She said, I'm giving him money because he doesn't make much as an artist, but I'm afraid I'm ruining his life. Doesn't he need to go out there and get some other job and make money? And I said, well, to tell you the truth, I don't know. Why don't you ask him? 
So we got together and sat down and she asked him and he said, oh no, this is perfect. He said, I love being an artist like you as a filmmaker, but I don't make a lot of money from it. You've had that great success, but it's exactly what I want to do. And I want to make more of my art and music. And you are my patron and I'm so grateful. It doesn't feel like it's spoiling me. It's letting me live the life that I really want to live. And they both laughed and she actually cried. What does it mean to speak to and listen to one another in this way? In the Tao, it says, do you have the patience to let the mud settle till the water is clear? Can you remain unmoving until the right response arises by itself? One of the benefits from this terrible pandemic is that it's given us more time to quiet our mind, to listen to our heart, to listen as we did in the meditation. What is it that this body needs? What kind of care and attention? Thank you to this body for caring so much. What is it that this heart wants most that needs to be accepted, that needs to be loved? Understood. Thank you, heart. Big heart for caring so much, tender, compassionate heart. Thank you. What is it in the rhythm of our life that we want and need to listen to? You can know, it will tell you. What is it in our family, the society around the earth that we inhabit that is our body? We are the body of the earth. By listening and listening deeply, listening with the heart, you can know. Again, one of my favorite stories was of the foremost follower or disciple of Mahatma Gandhi named Vinoba Bhave. And after Ganjiji, Gandhiji was assassinated. The entire Gandhian freedom movement that gained freedom for India from the British colonial empire. The Gandhian movement was in disarray, it fell apart. And in the year that followed, some people began to gather again and say, there's still work to be done in our country. We must carry on Gandhi's spirit. So they decided to have a big meeting and gathering in Gandhi's spirit and asked Vinoba, would he please come and lead the meeting? But he demurred and said, no, it's far away. Gandhiji is gone and we cannot just recreate it the way that it was. And they begged him, please, please, this is so important. His legacy must be carried on. 
finally Bonoba agreed to go, but he said, you must postpone it for six months so I can walk there. And he walked more than halfway across India, stopping at one village after another. In the first village, he sat under the banyan tree in the middle of the village with some of the elders and people there and listened and asked, what are the problems of this village and the hopes? And one of the people who spoke up said, we are part of the untouchable community, the Dalits in this village. And we work so hard, but we have no way of taking care of our family. We cannot own land. We're not allowed. We haven't been given that kind of permission. We have no resources. What can the government do for us? And Bonoba listened and spoke about the inspiration of Gandhi. The feeling that the people of India somehow could come to a solution. Hearing the suffering, the richest man in the village said, you know, I have a great deal of land. How much land do these people need? I'm so honored by your coming and the connection to Gandhi. And it was 16 families. They each needed five acres. He said, I will give 80 acres. Each family will have a plot. Anoba said, no, you must go back first to your family and make sure that they agree. And the next morning they met again and he said, I spoke with my wife, my children, my family, and I will give the 80 acres. People celebrated. And when Bonoba walked to the next village and asked about their difficulties and their hopes, he heard a similar story. And he told what had happened in the first village. And another wealthy man stood up and said, yes, in Gandhiji's spirit, I will offer 120 acres to these families. And he went on and on in six months, he had collected 2,800 acres. And at that conference, when he told the story, he began what was called the Bhutan Indian Land Reform Movement, where Bonobaji and his followers walked on foot through every province and almost every district in India and collected over the next few years, 14 million acres of land given to the poorest of the poor in these villages. It was one of the biggest transfers of land ever in modern history. And all because Bonoba walked and listened. When you listen, you can sense the universal truths, grasping and greed, hatred and ignorance cause suffering. Clarity of wisdom and truthfulness, love instead of hate, generosity instead of clinging, gratitude. These bring human happiness. It's not that complicated. I was asked to be uh, part of a group of well-known spiritual leaders as an advisor to a group at Facebook. And among these spiritual leaders, rabbis and priests and 
Muslim clerics and so forth, there were a lot of concerns. There was appreciation for the fact that Facebook allows people around the world to connect, whether in faith communities or in all kinds of other communities and celebration of that. But then great concern about the hate speech, about the anti-Muslim, anti-Islamic rhetoric, about the anti-Semitism. These were all raised as problems. What can we do about this? What can Facebook do? Then there were the concerns about hate, not just hate speech, but also false speech, lies and untruths, the kind of ignorance that's being promulgated. What can Facebook do about this, this group raised? And then I noted, well, you've gotten two of the roots of the source of human suffering from Buddhist psychology, hatred and ignorance, but you've forgotten about greed. What about the fact that the online world makes an enormous amount of money and some of it comes from getting children and teenage girls to look at themselves compared to others in unhealthy ways. Some of it comes from promoting material that is uh, fearful or, or, you know, the worst of human ideas and images that attracts us in some way. So I raised this question, what about the greed? What about the way that it's designed? Is it really healthy? And they asked me, did I have any suggestions? I came back and I said, yeah, reflecting for a little bit. I said, you know, Facebook's recent valuation is a trillion dollars. I said, how about if Facebook took 10% of its valuation, 10% of its annual income, that'd be a hundred billion dollars and used it to solve some important and pressing problem. You don't need that extra 10%. Use that hundred billion to end homelessness in the US. You could get a place for all the half million homeless people on the streets or use that hundred million to get laptops or iPads and medicine for every child in the refugee camps around the world. They said, we'll think about it. I'm waiting for their answer. But you know the ancient truth, hatred never ends by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law, love, generosity. Kindness is the language which the deaf can hear and the blind can see. That's Mark Twain again. And remember, while I think about it, when my twin brother who died a few years ago of leukemia was at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute around Harvard Medical School. And I spent a long time with him there. And part of what was so touching was to see patients who come from all around the world to this great medical center with their families. And the families like I was as a family, as a twin, were there with so much care and love and tenderness and trying to help and also offering cause my twin brother had leukemia. So there were all these blood donations and transfusions and 
playing with donations and you could just feel the field of care that it poured in. It's like Mr. Rogers' mother who said, when there's a disaster, don't just look at the hurricane and the floods and the typhoon and the earthquake. Look at the helpers. Watch and see the human response that pours in from all over. O nobly born, you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddhas of the awakened ones, Remember these truths. Remember this deep listening. You know it. You know it in the way that Chief Seattle said, what is man without the beasts? If all the beasts were gone, men would soon die from a great loneliness of spirit. For whatever happens to the beasts also happens to man. All things are connected. Whatever befalls the earth, befalls the sons and daughters of the earth. And we know this in our hearts. And when you know this, then you join together and you join your spirit with billions of others. Even in the course of this talk, there have been a thousand million, a billion acts of a mother putting rice gruel or scrambled eggs or peanut butter and jelly on the table for their child, of a father tending to a daughter or a son, offering them help, of so many who are tending the plots of land around them, who are tending one another in gracious ways, who are just being polite and kind, standing in line, waiting as a group of human beings to do what we need to do in harmony with those around us. Gandhi remember saying, when I despair, when I despair, so he did too. I remember that all through history, the way of truth and love has always won. Yes, there have been tyrants and murderers, and for a time they can seem invincible, but in the end, they always fall. Think of it, always. It takes a kind of humility, not my strong suit, by the way. It's not what we were taught in my family, we were taught to know things and my brothers and I, we all have a lot of facts. And they were actually really brilliant architect, engineer, you know, scientists, geneticists, whatever, all kinds of skills, boat captains and, you know, amazing chefs and all these things that my brothers and I have learned and worked with. But underneath, I know the importance of not really having the answer of humility. I know it when I've sat on retreats for 45 years and come together for those tender meetings of people in the middle of their 10 day or two or three months of meditation, just to sit and listen, to gaze at them, to notice the energy of their body, to feel the emotions that are visible 
emanating from their heart and mind to hear the stories they tell. To be able to listen in that way and feel intuitively, how can I respond and remind them of something bigger of compassion to hold it all, of the witnessing wisdom that sees the dance of the seasons coming and going, of the steadiness of the heart that's possible. Humility, a willingness to really listen and trust. We're a part of such a great mystery. A story I haven't told for a time and one of my favorites is of the great Sioux medicine man, Black Elk. Beloved, the story is told in his biography by John Nyhart called Black Elk Speaks, one of the great spiritual testaments to the wisdom holders and elders of this very land upon which we live, much of which was taken most of which was taken. So we have to feel that in our hearts as well and listen as Black Elk tells us something. For in the last chapter of the book, Black Elk Speaks, it describes Black Elk's finally hike up Harney Peak. The Sioux holy man had explained that when death approached, a Lakota could climb this sacred mountain to see if the great spirit approved of his life, rain would fall on those who had the blessing of the great spirit. As a young man, Black Elk had a vision that told him how to save his people and homeland from soldiers and settlers. He had this vision atop Harney Peak and all these years he had worked to fulfill this vision and restore what he called the sacred hoop of life. Living through tragic circumstances and great loss, he felt that he had somehow failed and that the sacred hoop was broken. On the day of his climb, Black Elk was a very old man. He dressed in red long johns, moccasins, war paint, and a feathered war headdress. Slowly and laboriously, he climbed to the summit Oblivious, oblivious to the tourists who were staring at him. Nyland teased him that he should have picked a day with at least one cloud in the sky. But Black Elk rebuked him saying that the rain would have nothing to do with the weather. At the top of the peak, not far from the tourists, the old man lay down on the earth under a blue sky. To his astonishment, Nyhard watched as a small cloud formed over Black Elk and a soft rain began to fall. Black Elk wept with relief. He felt that even though he had not succeeded in fulfilling his vision, the Great Spirit was recognizing that he had done his best.
sometimes we don't know how to go, what will be the fruits of what we do. But the secret is to act beautifully without attachment to the fruit of the action. And even our smallest things can make a difference, you know. I get letters from people who listen to these talks or podcasts or read my books. I get a lot, I got a letter recently from a woman who said, I just need to thank you so much. My teenage daughter began to have seizures. It was really scary before they were properly medicated. I was terrified and she was as well. And it involved many drives over some distance to the clinic to regulate her and get the tests and medicine. And to help me, I began to listen to your podcasts, your talks. And my teenage daughter who would never have listened began to listen too. And after a few months of our going back and forth to the clinic, she would say, do you have another talk of Jack's to put on? It helped us a lot, she wrote, thank you. Listen, dear ones, you have been training for these difficulties for a long time, for your whole life. And if you want to be amused and probably true for many lifetimes. And you know what it means to listen and to care and to choose wisely. The teachings from the Buddha, others will be cruel. We shall not be cruel, but be kind. Thus, we will incline the heart. Others will be greedy. We shall be generous. Thus, we will incline the hearts. Others will speak maliciously and untruthfully. We will speak truthfully and kindly. Thus, we shall incline the heart. Others will be arrogant. We shall have humility. Thus, we will incline the heart. Others will lack mindfulness and care. We will cultivate mindfulness and care. Thus, we will incline the heart. Others will respond with fear and confusion. We will respond with compassion. Thus, we will incline the heart. In times of uncertainty, this is called the most uncertain hour by one of my favorite poet songwrites. In times of uncertainty, it's not complicated. When we listen with the heart, we tend our business with integrity and care. We stand up for justice and against injustice, against racism, against all those things that would denigrate a human being. 
react beautifully. A billion acts in this hour, breathtaking scale, from flower box to cathedral. Trudy said the greeting for her when she was in the Darfur refugee camps was not, how are you? But how is your family? We are each other's bond. We are each other's community. We are each other's family. And what we most want, perhaps under it all, is to be listened to in the deepest way, to be met with the heart. I think of Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah, where he talks about the holy or the broken heart. Even though it all went wrong, I stand before the Lord of song with nothing on my lips but hallelujah. Big things in the world can only be achieved, it says in the Tao, by tending to their small beginnings. And Jane Goodall in her beautiful book and interview there was recently in the New York Times a few days ago says, you just plod on and do what you can to make the world a better place. But she said it was such a beautiful smile and such a caring heart. And you know, she's planting the seeds and she has for a lifetime that has touched us all. We can do this. We can listen with the heart and then the heart will respond. Thank you, dear ones. Let's just take a moment to breathe and be quiet. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.